Euronet Plus Panorama is a weekly review of European news broadcast by our network of EU radio stations. Hi, I'm Joe, and you're listening to Euronet Plus Panorama. There are no balloons and streamers out this week. Indeed, many people cannot believe that, two years on, there is no end yet in sight for the people of Ukraine. Yes, tomorrow, Saturday the 24th of February, is the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. And Tuesday marked 10 full years since Russia's occupation of Crimea. Speaking to Bulgarian National Radio, Ukrainian MP Musa Magomedov claims that it was obvious to him 10 years ago the way things were headed. But he predicts that this war will not still be raging 10 years from now. For me, the war started 10 years ago. Even then I understood that Putin would not stop there, that he would continue. Now I feel sure that the war will not last another 10 years. It will end in one to two, or maybe three years, with Ukraine's victory. Ukraine's ambassador to Estonia, Maxim Kononenko, talks to Kuku Radio about how everyday life in Kyiv has been impacted by the war. He also makes an interesting observation about the nature of this conflict. It is a very strange kind of war. I think everybody had uh, an illusion that next war, if it takes place, will be a modern war with drones, with aircrafts. It will be Star Wars uh, in some way. But it is uh, not a Star Wars. It is a mix of First World War, Second World War and new modern warfare. First World War, it is trenches, it is positional battles. Uh, Second World War, it is artillery duels, and uh, it is really important to have advantage in artillery on the battlefield. And of course, new modern technologies. While Putin may be using a mixture of modern and old school techniques in battle, observers note that he is drawing a great deal on the past in his discourse. Anna Tertishna a history scholar and Ukraine's deputy ambassador to Bulgaria, tells BNR that history is something Putin is attempting to weaponize. There is a definite fixation on history. They are trying to use Russian history as a weapon. It is high time it was understood in the global arena that they have completely falsified Russian history and more than once. It is based on a myth which served the ideology of the Russian homeland under various regimes and in different periods, and its falsification goes back to the very creation of the Moscow Principality in the 12th century. Returning to the last two years of misery in Ukraine, Ukrainian presidential advisor Mikhailo Podolyak goes so far as to utter the words ethnic cleansing in an interview with Polsky Radio. They came in with the intention of ethnic cleansing. It was a well-thought-out systematic policy that consisted of three components. First, they filtered. Second, they carried out deportations, as we saw in the occupied territories of eastern and southern Ukraine, including children who were taken away en masse from their parents. And the third component is the brutal killings we saw in Buchka, that is, people were raped, people were burned, and so on. 
While we make no comment either way on this claim, it is indisputable that Putin's regime is capable of great brutality. On this note, shockwaves have reverberated across the EU in recent days, following the death of the high-profile Russian opposition figure and number one persona non grata in the Kremlin, Alexei Navalny. Andrei Tsuranu, a professor at Romania's National University of Political Studies and Public Administration, claims that Navalny was Russian society's most influential anti-Putin dissident. He tells our Radio Romania colleagues that this is because he succeeded in bringing to light many of the economic hardships suffered by the Russian people in the hands of this, and I quote, kleptocratic regime. But while Navalny's name will undoubtedly live on in the Western public consciousness, will his death make a tangible difference in his homeland, given the heavy censorship that has long been imposed there? Most likely, in my opinion, Vladimir Putin would not have wanted Navalny dead, but he would have wanted him held in detention for an extremely long time. But perhaps someone was overzealous and, lo and behold, it has come to this. The problem for Vladimir Putin is that now, without question, even more Russian citizens, especially those who still have access to information, will probably either not turn out to vote at all or attempt some obviously limited form of dissent against Putin. RTV Slovenia's former Moscow correspondent, Miha Lampret, is definitely of the view that Navalny's death could serve a higher purpose. Maybe this could happen. This may sound overly poetic, but perhaps a dead Navalny can be politically even stronger than a Navalny in prison. Commission chief Ursula von der Leyen certainly hopes so. Putin fears nothing more than the dissent from his own people. Putin and his friends fear nothing more than people that stand up, that speak up, that fight for freedom and that fight against corruption like Alexei Navalny did. So what does Europe do now, you may ask? German FDP MP Renata Alt, who was born and raised in the former Czechoslovakia, stresses that it is high time that both Germany and the EU stop being so naive in their dealings with Putin. AMS shares her comments, made in the Bundestag on Wednesday. Consistent measures were never taken. We never cracked down hard enough. And when there were sanctions, like after the annexation of Crimea, they were half-hearted and rather ineffective. Further personal sanctions must now follow. Navalny gave 6,000 names, but only around 1,000 people have been sanctioned by the EU. There is still plenty of room for improvement. While Brussels clearly needs to get to the bottom of how Moscow is managing to circumvent the sanctions that are already in place, which it must be doing as it continues to finance the war, there are other roads we can go down too. Lithuanian Defence Minister Arvidas Anushauskas is a vocal proponent of the West increasing its defence capabilities. In this context, Jinu Radias asks him if Lithuania backs the proposal to create a new post at the Commission, that of EU Defence Commissioner. Not only would Lithuania not object, but I'm pretty sure that we actually suggested such a post should be created. 
I think that the EU is ripe for such a post, because the coordination of work in this area, from the defence industry to certain European capabilities that are intended to support NATO's capabilities, is, I would say, already relevant. In the same vein, Ambassador Kononenko, who we heard from earlier, adds that it is vital to encourage the expansion of arms production by offering assurances to Europe's defence industry. It is not only about Ukraine. It is not only about our capacity to defend ourselves. But it is about Europe, how Europe is able to defend their countries. I think that at least European countries should contract as many ammunition as possible for the future to give clear signal to defense industry that these rounds, this ammunition will be really needed not only today for Ukraine but tomorrow for the defense of the European Union and for Western countries. And so to let this defense industry increase their production without fear that tomorrow they will lose any gains, any revenue, uh, because uh, this production will not be needed anymore. On an unrelated note, since Donald Tusk took office as Polish Prime Minister at the end of last year, Warsaw has been on a bid to end the ongoing Article 7 procedure, which was triggered in 2017, following a series of reforms that were seen to undermine the rule of law and the independence of the media in Poland. The country is still waiting for billions of euros of EU money that were frozen as part of the procedure. Tusk hopes to revert the procedure before the end of this Belgian Council presidency. His Justice Minister, Adam Bodnar, travelled to Brussels on Tuesday, the 20th of February, to attend the General Affairs Council and demonstrate Warsaw's willingness to turn the corner. Bodnar briefed the council on an action plan of reforms the new government has or will put in place to address the issues raised under the Article 7 procedure. His comments are shared by Polski Radio. This is the action plan that the Polish people are waiting for. This is the action plan that the citizens voted for in the elections on the 15th of October, but also that they have been demanding for many years, fighting in the streets, protesting, calling for the independence of the judiciary, the independence of the prosecutor's office. It is up to the government to adopt the relevant bills and to negotiate them with civil society. We will, of course, persuade the president to sign these particular laws. Specific points on the plan include the fact that judges will no longer be appointed by politicians and that Poland wants to join the European Public Prosecutor's Office, says Luxembourg's 100.7. Voices from around Europe have welcomed this development and offered Tusk's team support in achieving this goal. Voices including that of Germany's Minister of State for Europe. Anna Lurman. How can we use the rule of law to reverse past setbacks? There is no precedent for this, and that is why we are ready to assist Poland to do this in such a way that it might serve as a model for future developments that we may see in other countries. So that's all for today. We'll be taking a two-week break now, but we'll be back with another panorama of the news from around the EU on Friday the 15th of March. Join us then.